Good morning. morning. I do have a good group of folks with us this morning, and not that that's not always the case, mind you. We always have a good group of folks, but we have some new faces with us today, and we're thankful that you've come to be with us. Some visitors with us, and that's always good. Hello to those of you that are over in the other room. Glad you're here. And to those of you who are online, hello to you as well. Uh, We're all smiling at you, and we're just grateful that you're here. I want to invite you to um, a, what I hope will be an encouraging and interesting and ultimately in the end a profitable study of God's Word. You know, as I think about our study together, I want to ask our um, fellow up there to uh, share the first slide. There you go. As I think about this study together, um, who doesn't appreciate a good comeback story? Now, how many of you recognize that character on the screen? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. We've got some that are either just don't recognize or you're just not going to raise your hand, period. I understand. I probably am, am you if I were sitting in the pew. Uh, now, this guy on the screen, just in case you don't know, uh, he's not a new character. I, I, I saw that Rebecca raised her hand. You raised your hand, but... Uh, Did you know, Rebecca, that this character came on the scene when I was younger than Peyton? 18. I was 18 years old when uh, Disney Pixar brought out uh, Woody on the big screen in Toy Story 1, the original Toy Story, the best of all of them, I'm sure, because the original is always the best, right? Anyway, so if you recall the story... Woody is Andy's favorite toy. Now, in case you don't know who Andy is, Andy is the little boy who lived in the house with his little sister and his uh, single mother. And uh, he had all of these great toys, but the one that he loved the most was Woody. And Woody had a special spot on Andy's bed, and Andy always knew where he could find Woody. Now, what you might not know if you're not familiar with the story is that at night when, uh, or rather during the day when Andy was gone, when people weren't around, the toys came to life. And they just had a big old time. And Andy was a, uh, a happy boy with a really happy toy and, and a lot of happy toys. And, and these toys had so much fun together when Andy was out and about, but yet they wanted to make sure that they made Andy happy. And so they provided a great growing up experience for Andy. Well, on Andy's birthday, Andy was excited about a new toy that was coming. Now, Andy had a special birthday party uh, that came about a week before a big move, okay? And the toys weren't aware that the birthday party was happening early. And so um, during the birthday party, Andy got all of his toys and he was excited about it, but he was bummed because there was one toy that he was hoping for that was missing. You know which one it was, right? Buzz Lightyear. And so Buzz Lightyear makes the appearance and Andy takes Buzz upstairs and Woody gets knocked off the bed And Buzz now has that place of honor on the bed. Now, I could talk about the whole thing, but I'm not going to because I'm here to preach a sermon. And so, if you just go through the process of the movie, Woody makes 
a comeback. And now you've got Woody and Buzz both in a place of equality, if you will, in Andy's mind regarding his toys. Who doesn't like a good comeback story? Now, when I think about comeback stories, one of my favorite comeback stories is something that I see on social media a lot, and it's when a soldier or an airman or a sailor or, or someone who's wearing the uniform comes home. And, and Next slide, please. And when they come home, guess what? They will go out. All, a lot of times we'll see this on video. They'll, they'll go up and they will surprise a loved one. Maybe it's in the school classroom. Maybe it's on a job or, or whatever. But, but they'll surprise a loved one having just come home from someplace where they're serving and the family member, the friend, they're taken by surprise, and what happens? They burst in tears, excitement. And we that are watching all of this, we of course experience that same emotion, right? And I suppose that I've never seen one of those videos where I've not gotten a little bit choked up, if not allow the tears to flow. We appreciate those types of comeback stories. And then I think about, you know, those occasions where someone is, is injured or someone who is, is ill. And, and uh, thank you. And so when they're experiencing this injury or this illness, sometimes they're able to come back from that injury. And sometimes they're not able to make a full recovery from an injury or an illness, but they're able to regroup and, and figure out a way that they can re-engage in life that offers value not and purpose not only for themselves, but for those around them. I think about those occasions where maybe family members are are dealing with some division within, within their family. Maybe it's a husband and wife. Maybe it's the entire family. And they're, they're going through a struggle and they seem to be at one another's throats. And, but all of a sudden, they're able to work through it and they're able to come back together. And we have a great restoration of maybe a, a marriage or maybe of a family. A beautiful story, a beautiful comeback story. I think about athletes you know, those that have experienced some type of a struggle or difficulty, maybe by their own making, maybe it's addiction. I remember back in the, in the late 90s when, you know, Michael Jordan, who, by the way, didn't make his senior team to play basketball as a high school player, but he went on to play college, obviously, and play in the NBA incredible basketball player. In about 90, if I remember right, it was about 97, uh, it was made known that he had a gambling problem. And it caused him a lot of issues. Ultimately, he left the game of basketball for a year and tried out baseball. Horrible batting average. I think it was like 200, something like that. But he tried the, the baseball thing, and, and, and that didn't last. He comes right back to basketball, and he wins a couple of championships after that awesome comebacks. And we could go on and on with this, but what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you three comeback stories. Three. And the first two we'll spend a little bit more time on than the third, but the first one is this. It is the comeback story of Simon Peter. So I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start there together. Matthew chapter 16. And you really need your Bible for this lesson, not that you don't need your Bible for every lesson, and I hope you always bring your Bible to worship, but in Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus, of course, he's come to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, verse number 13, and he's asking a question to those that are in his, uh, in his gathering, and he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course, there's the response, well, you know, Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elias, some say that you're Jeremiah, or you're one of the prophets. But Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus is uh, answered by Simon Peter, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in this moment, Simon Peter, who, by the way, was uh, brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew, being both fishermen, he's brought to Jesus and he follows Jesus and Jesus tells him, you know, you're, you've been fishing for uh, fish, but now you're going to be a fisher of men. Well, Peter has hung out with Jesus for a little while. He's one of his disciples and now Jesus is asking, but, you know, who do folks say that I am? And Peter gives the right response. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, blessed art thou Simon bar Jonah. Bar means son of, blessed art thou son of Jonah or son of John. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say to you, you're Peter, right? You're a rock. Not a great big boulder kind of rock, but, but, you're, but you're a rock. I say to you that you are a rock, Peter, and upon this rock, oh, a different rock, a boulder, a solid foundation. But I say unto you that I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And Peter, I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, in this moment, we learn, of course, that Peter has been given an incredible responsibility because he was the guy who stood up and said, well, I know exactly who you are. You are the son of the living God. And... Jesus says, you know, based on that confession, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And you're going to unlock the door to the church of Christ. Now I say that, you say, well, it didn't say that in the text. Well, it did. Were you paying attention? It said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And upon this rock, this rock-solid foundation, Jesus, that, that I am Jesus, the Son of God, upon this rock, I will build my church. Whose church was it? Jesus' church. What is the church of Christ? Well, it's a title. No, it's not. It's not a title. Now, sometimes we use it that way. Well, you, you know, we refer to ourselves as church of Christers. Well, who, who says that? I've heard it said. Well, what is that? It, it's like a title of some sort. Well, um, the church of Christ or the fill in the blank with some other type of church. Well, then we're giving it a title. Jesus, Jesus didn't give it a title. Jesus said, it is my church. The church of Christ just represents ownership. It is the church that belongs to Christ. That's why you have in Romans chapter 16, and verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. All of them. All of the churches that belong to Christ. Well, which are the churches that belong to Christ? The only ones that belong to him. That is, those that are in keeping with the Word of God. And those that are in keeping with the Word of God, they are the churches of Christ. So Jesus gives to Peter an important responsibility, a key to the kingdom, and he's going to unlock the door to the kingdom or the church of Christ with the kingdom key. And we'll get to that in just a second. 
But if you look a little further in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, Jesus is with his disciples and he says, I'm going to suffer a lot of things and ultimately I'm going to be taken away and I'm going to be crucified. And what does Peter say? It's not going to happen. And if he were in the south, like you and I are, he, he would say, it ain't going to happen. What did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. What? Jesus, perhaps you're mistaken. You told me just a little bit earlier, you're going to give me the keys of the kingdom, right? I said, you are Jesus. You are the Son of God. And you gave me a heavy responsibility. You're the keys of the kingdom. And now you're calling me Satan? Can you imagine that? What's the point? Peter was called Satan because in this moment, he was by being identified by Jesus as you're standing in the way of progress. What's going to happen? Jesus is going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And Peter says, no, it's not going to happen. Well, if I don't do that, guess what? Everybody's going to be lost. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those things that be of men. And then you notice what Jesus says in verse number 25. Whoever loses his life for, um, whoever will save his life will lose it, but he that loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, Peter, there be some of you standing here which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You got me. You're right, Lord. You got me. If we go a little bit further, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is gone to the garden, of course, the garden of Gethsemane, and he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, verse 37, and he began to be very sorrowful. And on three occasions in the garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that Jesus talks to his father about what he's getting ready to experience, and three times in three prayer postures, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talks to his father and he says, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus goes back to his disciples and he, Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, and he says, could you not stay awake? Could, could you not just hang? Could you not just hang with me? Could you not just stay awake while I'm in prayer? Now, it was in, in this context, at this setting, where the betrayer kisses Jesus to identify him as being the Son of God to the soldiers who would take him away and ultimately have him crucified. And you notice what happens in verse number 51. And behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, we learn later, Mark's account, or Luke's account, rather, that this would be Peter. And behold, one of them, which was with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest, Malchus, of course, was his name, and smote off his ear. And Jesus said, put your sword up. For all they that take the sword will perish by the sword. You go a little further. 
And the Bible tells us that as we look into the account of Jesus being betrayed and Jesus being taken away, Jesus tells Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And you remember, after Jesus has been taken away, and all of the agony that he has been going, going through, is the trials, the scourging, and Peter is hanging out and he's seeing this and the soldiers are asking, Peter, weren't you with Jesus? No, I wasn't with him. Wait, no, I, I recognize you. You were hanging out with Jesus. You're, you're one of his, I wasn't with him. You were. You were with him. You were hanging out with Jesus. You were absolutely one of his disciples. And then he begins to curse and say, it wasn't me. And the cock crows. And the Bible tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. I want you to look over in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, Jesus, of course, he's, he's, he's been crucified at this point. He's been raised at this point. And now we have the third appearance before his disciples. And in John chapter 21, beginning with verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Now they had just been fishing. They had caught more than the, the, the net should have been able to hold, one might say. But they were able to bring all of these fish in. And the Bible tells us a little bit later here in the text that uh, they are dining on these fish. Verse 13 says, Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. And when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He said to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now, of course, Jesus is asking the question, Do you agape me? Do you love me? Do you, highest form, the most sacrificial form of love. And Peter responds with, Well, I, I phileo you, I, I, I friendship, I, I have a natural love for you. Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said, Feed my sheep. Agape me? Well, you know that I phileo you. Verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Phileo? Do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I phileo thee. Jesus said, feed my sheep. There's been some debate about the significance of the two Greek terms that are used here for love. As if to say, well, Jesus is trying to get Peter to say that, well, you have the agape, the, the highest form of love for me. But instead, he answers with a natural affection, phileo type of love. Greeks would say that really we're putting too much emphasis there because those two words were used interchangeably. In fact, if you go back and study the book of John, those words were often used interchangeably. 
If you go back and look at the, um, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, again, those words were used interchangeably. And so the significance really should be this. Peter is identifying to the Lord, Lord, I have a natural affection for me, for, for you. What, what, what more could you want? I do love you. I have a significant affection for you. If you go back and look at, at verse number 15, here is the weight of the love. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? What are the these? Some might suggest that uh, the question is, well, do you love me? Do you love me more than you love your brethren, do you, than you love your fellow disciples? Do you love me more than that? Some would argue that maybe what he's saying is, do you love me more than you love your favorite fishing net or your fishing boat or fishing itself or the job? Or it could be, and this is probably more accurate, Peter, do you love me more than the disciples, your brethren, love me? Do you love me more than that? And then when you come to verse number 17, when he's convinced of that love, Jesus tells him, all right, I know you do. Go feed my sheep. Because in that moment, Peter is able to say, yes, you got it, Lord. You got me. I do love you. You're right. I do love you. All right. I know you do. It's very clear that he had forgiven him. In fact, you go back and you, you look uh, at uh, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as Jesus makes uh, uh, his presence known to Peter after the resurrection and makes his appearance to Peter first before the other disciples. It's very clear that Jesus has forgiven Peter for the denial. I want you to go feed my sheep now. And if we can take sheep to mean people in general, then we can appreciate it better in its context of Acts chapter 2. As we see Peter enjoying the greatest comeback story, or at least one of the greatest comeback stories we read in the New Testament. Right? There he is on the day of Pentecost. 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, when he's standing there and he lifts up his voice with the eleven, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, having just been told, you're drunk. You're... And Peter says, we're not drunk as you suppose, seeing as but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote what Joel had to say. And as you continue to read through that passage, Peter, Peter says ultimately three things in that sermon. You killed Jesus. God raised Jesus. And God glorified Jesus. He's now on the right hand of the throne of God. And the Bible says when they heard that message, they were pricked in their hearts. The sheep, those people present on that day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, when they heard that message, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people did just that. Isn't that a great comeback story? I want you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 16. When you think about comeback stories, perhaps this is the one that most obviously comes to mind. We read about the prodigal. The prodigal. Luke chapter, did I say 16? I meant 15. Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, in verse number 11, the Bible says that a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And we've often said that, well, this was, this was that which was owed him based on the language here that this son will give that which is mine. In Jewish tradition, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a legal thing. It's not like the father had to give him this. But the father was inclined to give him a portion. And so since you're inclined to give me this portion, go ahead and give it to me now. And then it says in verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. And may I just say that any, any amount of time that we spend our lives in sin, it doesn't matter if it's just a moment in time like a, an hour or a day or weeks or months, but any amount of time that we spend in sin is wasted time. And he is spending some wasted time in riotous living, which simply means there wasn't anything off the table. If you could think of, it almost makes me think of Genesis chapter 6, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Not only were they doing bad stuff, but they were thinking, well, what bad stuff can we come up with to do next? That's kind of where this guy was at. He was wasting his life in riotous living. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. You know, according to Psalm 84 and verse 11, if we are righteous, there's nothing that we need that God is going to leave out for us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to provide. He's going to give us all that which we need and more. And here he is in want. Why? Because he's chosen to live unrighteously. This is really interesting here in verse 16, though, where it says, No man gave unto him. Here this guy, he had, he had family. He had a father that clearly loved him. He had a brother that tolerated him. That seems pretty normal. Uh, but he had he had. Right, folks that he worked with. He had all of this companionship, and now he has nothing. We crave companionship, don't we? That's normal. We go back to the very first book of the Bible, and we see that, that companionship, togetherness, is a theme of mankind. We need that connection. And here he doesn't have it. No man gave unto him. And he came to himself and he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And here I am, I, pe I perish 
with hunger? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up. I'm going to go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Just make me as one of your hired servants. Here he is. He's having a conversation with himself. And if he had stopped there, he would have failed miserably. You know, a lot of times we write these promissory notes to God. And we just stop there, right? God, I, just, I make this promise to you. I'm, I'm going to come around. I'm, I'm going to get my life right. And I'm going to do it later. And later never comes. A lot of times we find this with young people. Young people feel as though they're, they're you know, nothing is ever going to happen to them. Indefensible. Just in, incomparable to think that, that my life could come to an end. That... I'm going to lose my state of, of mental well-being where I can think through things rationally and make decisions. That would never happen. I'm going to come to the Lord later. And later never happens. If a promissory note is all we come up with, we've never gone far enough. And so he gets up. He repents. He changes his mind. And he rose and he came to his father, but when he was yet a great far off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he can't help but think, what was this day like? What were the days leading up to this day like? I can almost, I can almost see it in my, my mind's eye. Maybe every day this father takes a look down the road and looks for his boy. I wonder if the money's run out. I, I wonder if he's been able to figure life out on his own. I, I wonder what his status is like. I, I wonder if maybe he'll come home today. And he looks and he just, he's just hopeful. No, not today. I wonder how many days of the week are like that where he's looking for his boy to come home. I wonder if he ever sees someone coming down the way and maybe his eyesight is like many as they get older, eyesight somewhat in failure. and he, he thinks, well, it sort of looks like his silhouette, but as he gets closer, no, it's not him. I wonder if on this day, though, as he looks, he sees this image of someone coming that, that, that looks like it could be his son, and he says, no, nah, there's no way. But as he gets closer, he realizes, wait a second, it is him. It is my son. And the Bible tells us that he went to him, the father went to him while he was yet afar off. He ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, it's as if... He had to get the father to back up. Just hold on, Dad. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I find it interesting here that he didn't blame his family. He didn't blame his friends. He didn't blame anybody else for his leaving. He just blamed himself. And he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father said to the servants, Bring the best robe. Put it on him. 
Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You know, when when folks stray away and come back home, God restores them to their rightful place in the kingdom. And I can't help but wonder sometimes, do we fail in that regard as Christians? How many times have we, have we had someone come to us and, and say, I was wrong. I, I, I've sinned and I'm, I'm sorry. And I want you to forgive me. And we say, I forgive you. And yet, our actions would indicate we never do. We've not restored them to their rightful place in the kingdom. How many times have folks who have sinned publicly responded in like manner, responded publicly, and said, I, I, I've sinned against God, I've, I've brought reproach upon the church, and we fail to restore them to their rightful place in the kingdom. Just as God has. May I suggest to you that in this particular situation, not only was he restored to his rightful place in the kingdom, but he was given the absolute best in the kingdom. It's almost as if he was put into a better position in the kingdom upon his repentance and restoration. Isn't that a wonderful comeback story? Finally, as we think about comeback stories, what about your comeback story? Right now, we are standing at the foot of the cross. And Jesus is knocking on the door of our heart and he's saying, perhaps to someone even in this audience, you know who you are. There's sin in your heart. Maybe it's not just your heart. Maybe it's your life. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with those that you work with. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. But there's sin in your heart and in your life, and it's standing between you and your God right now, and it's separating you. And God says, I want you to have a comeback story today. The Bible says in Luke 13 and verse 3, I tell you nay, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We cannot go to heaven if there's sin in our life. I'm not saying that there is perfection in our life. I'm not saying that we're doing life perfectly, that we never make a mistake. Of course, you and I understand we all make mistakes. We understand that. But there's a difference between an individual who makes a mistake occasionally and an individual who is constantly living within their error. There's a difference. Do you need to repent? Do you need to change your mind about sin? Do you need to come home? Maybe... Maybe it's not that you're a Christian who has wandered and needs to enjoy a comeback story, but maybe you just need to come to, to the Christ 
to begin with. Maybe you just need to come and say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe you need to make the decision to make the Savior the Lord of your life. When you make that confession and that decision, what you need to do is you need to change your mind about sin. You say, well, I've, I've, never, I've never really been a big sinner, so to speak. I, I've never really followed a path that I would say is a path of sin. I, I've lived a pretty good life, a pretty moral life. I've never really done anything wrong. If you're outside of Christ, you're lost in sin. Because salvation is only found in the Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So, Neil, how do I get into Christ if that's where salvation is? There's only one way. You, 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 can't, you can't just come to the foot of the cross and kneel and say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Forgive my sins. I, I know there's some folks that believe that, and I, I believe their hearts are in the right place, but... But if that's the extent of your understanding and the extent of what you have done to, become, to come into a right relationship with Jesus, you haven't gone far enough. You've made some great steps and strides, but you've not gone far enough. You see, you've come to Jesus in the sense that you have recognized who he is. And maybe you've even made the commitment, I want you, Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. And, and Jesus, I have repented. I've changed my mind about sin. I just want to follow you. And all of that's great. And you're on the right track, but you're not in Christ yet. And your sins have not been remitted yet. Remember Peter's comeback story? Remember when he preached that, that gospel sermon of how they were guilty of killing Jesus, which would apply to all of us, by the way? And how God raised him from the dead and glorified him where he's now sitting on the right hand of the throne of God? When those people realized they were guilty of killing Jesus, that their sin put them on the cross, they said, what do we do? They weren't told to pray. They weren't told to repent and pray. They were told to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. As many of them as were baptized, 3,000 on this occasion, as many of them as were baptized had their sins forgiven. And Jesus added to his church, the church of Christ, remember the church that belongs to Christ. And they enjoyed a relationship with Jesus that they had never had before. Do you want to have that? Do you want to come to Jesus? Whether you need to come to him for the first time or you need to experience a comeback story, the choice is yours. Think about it. As we stand and sing this song designed to encourage us, if you need to come, do it now as together we stand and as we sing.